At the end of the last video, we laid out why it might be appropriate to symbolize gods with fish. In Jung's mind, all of existence is made up of opposites, for without them, there is no dimension. The union of opposites is best found in the god image, or Jungian self. As we have laid out throughout the series up until this point, the Jungian self is the highest state that human beings wish to emulate because that state is a perfect union of opposite elements. We recognize this pinnacle state of being, at least in the West, as Jesus Christ. Jesus, along with the Christian God and many other gods, have been symbolized by fish because the fish too is somewhat a union of opposites. We briefly illustrated in the last video how the fish shares that ambivalent nature of the god image, of having good and bad attributes. I will now present some more religious examples from Jung that illustrate the fish symbol as having an ambivalent quality. In Egyptian mythology, the fish was sometimes used as a symbol for the soul. Jung's evidence of this was a painting on a late Hellenistic sarcophagus. In this painting, there lies a mummy and above it, there floats a fish. What is interesting, however, is that even though the fish is a symbol for the soul, it also has a negative element to it. Jung notes that the fish on this sarcophagus is a barbel, which is one of the most abominated fishes in Egyptian mythology. The reason for this is that apparently, a barbel devoured the phallus of Osiris, the highest Egyptian god, after he had been dismembered by Set. In paragraph 185, Jung references is a story that should be familiar to many of you Jordan Peterson fans, the Babylonian creation myth of Marduk and Tiamat. For those who aren't familiar, the basic idea of the story is that Tiamat is the goddess of the salt sea, a type of sea monster, a fish. Tiamat had been tyrannizing the gods, so Marduk went to battle with Tiamat and killed her. Then, Marduk took Tiamat's corpse and split it into two halves. With one half, Marduk formed the sky and formed the earth with the other half. This echoes the story from the Book of Tobit in the last chapter, where Tobias faced off with a threatening fish and then extracted its healing property for his father's blindness. One quick thing we should note is that the Babylonian myth echoes the Egyptian creation myth. As Edward Edinger notes in the Ion Lectures, the Babylonian tale of Marduk and Tiamat is a variation of the primitive Egyptian creation myth of the separation of the world parents, in which the god Shu came in between them. They were in a state of continuous cohabitation, and lifted the two apart so that one became the sky and the other the earth. Jung makes other brief references to the ambivalence of the fish, but for the sake of time we will move on to the key example from Judeo-Christian mythology. In respect to the good side of Judeo-Christian fish symbolism, the obvious example is that Jesus, the symbol of the perfect man, is symbolized by fish. It is all the more appropriate that the body of Christ is meant to be symbolically eaten during Mass. If you're Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. You go to the priest and he offers you a wafer that is symbolic of Christ's body. When the Mass eats the Eucharistic food, they are ritually integrating the body of Christ into themselves. Now granted, you are not eating a piece of fish when you go to Mass, but the underlying meaning is the same. You are eating the body of your deity. And fish, too, can be eaten. This is the good side of the fish in regards to Judeo-Christian symbolism. What about the often ignored bad side? 
of the fish. I will cite the very first paragraph of this chapter where Jung details a different type of Eucharistic food, one that was prophesied in the Syrian apocalypse of Baruch. According to the Syrian Apocalypse of Baruch, the time preceding the coming of the Messiah falls into two parts, and the Messiah will appear in the twelfth. As a time division, the number twelve points to the zodiac, of which the twelfth is the fishes. Leviathan will then rise out of the sea. The two great sea monsters which I created on the fifth day of creation, and which I have preserved until that time, shall then be food for all who are left. I briefly alluded to Leviathan at the end of the last video as this enormous, monstrous fish. In regards to the Jewish texts, there is a legend of this great banquet that will happen at the end of time, when Yahweh will kill this enormous sea monster and serve it to his pious followers. This legend is echoed in Isaiah 27.1, where the Lord will slay this monster of the sea. It is also mentioned, probably most famously, in the story of Job, where God asks Job if he can catch Leviathan with a fish hook. Now, one might be inclined to ask as to where this giant fish came from, what its purpose is, and why God would supposedly have a giant battle with it at the end of time so he may feed it to his followers. As I said at the end of the last video, the Leviathan represents the dark side of God. It is the irreconcilable opposite to God's goodness, the one that God broke off with at the beginning of time. It is the devil. It is Lucifer, whom God casted down to the greatest depths of hell. It is whom God battles at the end of time. It is the shadow that Yahweh will integrate at the end of time, as the problem of opposites is represented with the two fishes in Christ and Antichrist, logic dictates that this applies not just to God the Son, but also to God the Father. Some of you might have noticed a slight inconsistency with what I just said and the actual text of the Syrian Apocalypse, that is, the mention of two great sea monsters. This mention of two leviathans extends to Isaiah 27.1 as well. Depending on which version of the verse you read, or which book you read, it suggests there might either be one or two leviathans. Well, you can't have two shadows split off from you, so where did this extra monster come from? There is a potential explanation to this question, and I will use a diagram to explain it. In past videos, I have made reference to the Ouroboros, the famous symbol of the snake eating its own tail. This paradoxical state of being represents the state of the world before the beginning of time, when all of existence was contained in one seed. This state of being is represented appropriately as a circle, a shape that is analogous, especially in alchemical tradition, to unconsciousness. When time began, this unconscious state of being became conscious, forcing the seed to hatch and all of existence to spring forth. This coming to consciousness is symbolized by squaring the circle, another concept from alchemical tradition. No longer unconscious, it has firm, tangible edges. Now, in order for existence to come into being, this Ouroboric state must separate so that the universe can have dimension. This separation is symbolized by drawing a line from one corner of the square to the other. If you separate them, you have two triangles. One triangle represents the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other triangle represents Devil, Antichrist, 
and the anti-Christian spirit. In order for that original perfect state of wholeness to be realized once again, the irreconcilable opposites must come together. Both trinities must acknowledge that fourth element that they both lack, that fourth element that they have tried to ignore and push into unconsciousness. As I stated before, this reunion will supposedly happen at the end of time when the Messiah comes. God will battle with Leviathan and serve him as food to be integrated. Just as God will integrate his dark side, so too must his followers. Now, admittedly, as interesting as this is, this still doesn't answer why there might be two leviathans, two shadows. Well, just as Christians try to deny that any evil emanates from the Godhead, and just as we try to deny the dark parts of ourselves, God, too, tries to ignore that dark side of himself. If there were two leviathans instead of one, that would remove the singular leviathan's identity as God's opponent, as the evidence of God's dark side. Quote, its original opposition to God takes a back seat, and the monster is now in conflict either with itself or with an equivalent monster. If we embrace the notion that opposites are a necessity, as well as the logic of our shape diagrams, we can draw a line down the dark trinity and split it into two triangles, two leviathans. There is also the possibility that the other triangle could represent Behemoth, the opposite to Leviathan mentioned in the story of Job, a monstrous land animal to complement the sea-dwelling fish. But at the risk of overcomplicating things, we won't pursue this for now. The core point that Jung is trying to illustrate is that the dual aspect of God is anticipated by the psyche. It is an archetype of the unconscious. It is projected by our unconscious minds onto our myths. While the details of these stories might differ and contradict, the underlying pattern is the same. In order for a being, be it a human or a hypothetical god, to achieve wholeness, one must integrate its opposite. From a psychological point of view, one must integrate the contents of one's shadow in order to achieve wholeness that unity of opposites. This whole process is symbolized by catching a fish from the primordial depths of the water and using it for its beneficial qualities. For humans, it's food. For Tobit, its innards are curative. For God, it's his other half. If the world continues to ignore these unconscious contents and refuses the painful process of integration, we can count with absolute certainty on the existence of complementary or, to be more precise, compensatory developments in the unconscious. In other words, if we deny those irreconcilable opposites their place, they will fester and grow into something much more terrifying, something that threatens to consume us all like a giant beast of the deep. I would like to conclude by referencing something that was briefly mentioned in Chapter 7, the idea that evil emanates from the quote-unquote North. In Chapter 7, I provided several sources ranging from Christianity to Egyptian mythology, suggesting that some evil force emanated from the North, that Lucifer, the Antichrist, and Set have their abode in the North. What I have neglected to mention up until this point is that just like the Godhead has two opposite elements, the force of good also emanates from the north in many religions. Quote, According to Babylonian tradition, Anu has his seat 
in the northern heaven. Likewise, Marduk, as the highest god, world creator and ruler of its courses, is the pole. In like manner, the Sabians and Mandaeans, when praying, turn towards the north. What is most remarkable, however, is that in Arab tradition, the region round the heavenly pole is seen in the form of a fish. Kazvini says, The pole can be seen. Round it are the smaller Banatnash and dark stars, which together form the picture of a fish, and in its midst is the pole. I also neglected to mention that when I quoted Ezekiel in the seventh video, when he saw a whirlwind coming from the north, that wasn't a force from the devil. It was from God. All of these examples suggest that the north, which is supposed to be the abode of evil, is also the abode of good. A place where the opposites unite. A god image. When Edinger commented on why the north, like the paradoxical fish, combines the opposites of good and evil, he says the following. I think the basic reason for this is that the cosmic axis is rooted at the North Star, and it is the center of the universe. The center of the Great Cosmic Mandala is located there. The Great Cosmic Mandala Edinger refers to can be demonstrated with this video. If you do a time-lapse video of the sky at the North Pole, this is what you will observe. The Cosmic Mandala the symbol of wholeness which Jung says represents the perfect union of opposites. A circular, wholesome union that reflects that Ouroboric state, that God image at the beginning of time. This is where God resides, in the center of that mandala. Thank you very much for watching. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share. Also, if you like the work I'm doing here and want to support me, please consider donating to my Subscribestar campaign. Depending on how much you donate, you will gain a certain number of rewards, including movie night, access to my gamer tags, and more. There's a link to it in the description box below. Finally, if you want more discussions surrounding Ion, make sure to subscribe to Uberboyo and Jimmy Boyo. They provide a lot more insight into these concepts and find ways to make the subject less terrifying and more much more fun. Until next time, just remember, stay yellow.